Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Genesis chapter 41. We're looking at Joseph's character. Last week we looked at part one. Um, And today we're going to look at part two, where his hope rests. Where do you, how do you know where your hope really rests? We talk about it a lot, don't we? I mean, what do you hope in, those kinds of things. We we talk about what we envision or visualize for ourselves. but how do you know that you know? I want to confront that this morning if I can. Uh, because I believe that's what we see in Joseph's life. There's a, an apex this morning. There's a culmination of 17 years, or excuse me, 13 years of Joseph's life that we're going to see this morning. And in that culmination, it can be easy for us to measure it in an instant and go, oh, he did what was right and God gave him everything he wanted. But that would be a complete bypass of everything that is important and that we've studied so far. You know, I think tests and trials are probably the best revealer of where our hope rests, but let's not wait till a test comes upon our life to be sure where our hope is seated. Let's be aware of that every day. So as we go to the text today, Genesis chapter 41, I want to read verses 1 through 8. Joseph has now been in prison for four years, and though he's been forgotten, though he's been neglected in every way, he has guarded his heart and he has served faithfully. Verse 1 of Genesis 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. May God bless the reading the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Two years Joseph has waited since the last moment at the end of chapter 40 when the chief cupbearer whom he had interpreted his dream for and told him, you'll be restored, remember me and mention me to Pharaoh. Two years had passed since that occurred. And what do we learn at the end of chapter 40? Joseph was forgotten. He had been enslaved by his brothers. He had been sold to slavery by a traveling band. And then they sold him to Potiphar, 
who had put him in charge of his house, but when he was wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife, he was thrown into prison. And it tells us that he was thrown into the the lowest of the low, as we'll see in just a moment. But in that place, the prison guard acknowledged him and, and he rose up to a place of prominence where he was in charge of all the prison. And that's where we found him. Until chapter 41 begins... And while Joseph's situation had remained unchanged, and in the midst of that, every day had dimmed hope a little bit more that he might ever get out. But then we have to remember that God works to use his instruments for his greater glory. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 41. Pharaoh has a dream. Seven big cows come out of the river. Which, which illustrates like affluence and illustrates in this uh, agrarian mindset. It, 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 uh, it illustrates wealth and, and, and prosperity in every way. But then seven other cows come out and they are ugly and thin. And they eat the plump cows. What a dream that must have been. Not fun to have. And it tells us that Pharaoh awakes and he's evidently startled by his dream, but he gets back to sleep and lo and behold, he dreams again. And this time it's seven heads of grain that are again healthy and good and and growing on a single stalk. And they grew up, but all of a sudden seven more heads of grain sprouted and they were thin and they were parched and absorbed by the east wind. And the thin heads, again, swallowed the seven healthy. But this time, when Pharaoh awoke, he realized it had been a dream. But it was one of those dreams he could not forget. Sound familiar? I mean, just to to track God's use of dreams through this portion of Genesis is an amazing theme for us. And this is what we continue to return to. He calls for all the magicians of the land and the wise men. And he tells it to them. And and do you know what they say? Nothing. They haven't a word to say. They have no idea what this has to do with. You know why? Because God's ways are higher than our ways. And, And God doesn't work in the way that the world works. And the wisdom of the world doesn't compare to the ignorance of God. If I can just make a comparison. But in that moment, the cupbearer tells Pharaoh, verse 9 through 13, that he remembers this guy when he was in prison. And he told him a dream. And, and, and when he told him the dream, everything he said would come true. And, and he said that, that he interpreted my dream. And, and then it came true. And so Pharaoh says, well, get the guy up here. I want to hear from him. And Pharaoh says, it, you, uh, the cupbearer tells me that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, no, no, it's not me, but God will give you a favorable interpretation. And so Pharaoh recounts the two dreams to Joseph in verses 14 through 24. And he provides a little more info as, uh, as he recounts the dream. So we get a little deeper insight into all that took place in the dreams. But we also get more insight into how upsetting the dreams were to Pharaoh and how unnerved he was by them. And so beginning in verse 25 through verse 32 Joseph says to Pharaoh that the dreams are actually one dream. One dream. That God is telling Pharaoh what it is that he is about to do. That Don't miss this. God doesn't tell Joseph his chosen instrument. But who does he tell? Pharaoh. Arguably the world ruler of the time. 
God tells Pharaoh what he's going to do and uses Joseph to interpret that. And so God is telling Pharaoh what he's about to do, that seven years of plenty will be followed by seven years of famine. And the severity of the famine will make the years of abundance forgotten. Think about that for a moment. When things are so good, how tempted we are to think we could never forget this. But when things are bad, how easily we can't even recall a moment of goodness. And that's what Joseph tells Pharaoh will happen. And the two dreams with the same message, Joseph says this, because you had it twice, God has established that it will happen and it will happen Soon, You see, there was a reason that Pharaoh was so upset at the dream. God wanted him to have a sense of urgency in his response to it. Joseph immediately recommends a plan to Pharaoh, and he tells Pharaoh, you need to appoint someone that is discerning and wise over the land to manage the years of plenty in order to prepare for the years of famine. And what you need to do is take 20% of the crop and store it in the years of plenty in order to provide for the years of famine. Interestingly, I find in this, Pharaoh never asked Joseph for a plan. Joseph didn't take a breath between the interpretation and the wisdom or the wise counsel. He just told him, this is what you need to do. And I'm telling you, it's not only going to happen, it's going to happen soon. You should not delay in what you're doing. And Pharaoh says this, he, he says, is there anyone with the spirit of Joseph's God to oversee the plan? Here's what he didn't ask. Is there anyone as great as Joseph to oversee the plan? But he said, is there anyone with the spirit of Joseph's God? Why did he do this? Well, I don't want us to miss this because throughout, Joseph never took credit for what he was doing. He always said, I don't interpret dreams, but God does. He told Pharaoh that I can't give you an interpretation, but God can. God can. And so when Pharaoh was looking for someone to implement this plan, he was looking for someone with the spirit of this God that Joseph had testified about. He didn't even look to the guy sitting right in front of him that gave him the plan, but rather to one that had the spirit. And there is no one that can be found. And so he appoints Joseph in charge of the palace. And he makes him so that all the people submit to Joseph's orders. Now listen friends, this chapter is not about dreams. Dreams are nothing more than a conduit for God's work in this whole section of Genesis. But listen to what transpires after the dream. When he appointed Joseph in charge of his palace, only Pharaoh would be greater than Joseph. And listen to this description. How adequate and appropriate it is for us as we move into Easter weekend. Pharaoh gives him a signet ring, which is the sign of authority that he carries. He clothed him with clothes of royalty he provided a chariot for him to ride in and as Joseph came into the town people bowed down before him wherever he went and then Pharaoh says this to Joseph I am Pharaoh and without your constant uh, without your uh, consent no one shall lift up a hand or a foot 
in all the land. And then he changes his name and he gives him Potiphar's daughter in marriage. And the narrative climaxes in this way. Verse 45, so Joseph went out over the whole land of Egypt. Now we're going to come back to that in a moment, but I want you to hear that in the reading. Verse 46 tells us that when Joseph begins to serve, he's 30 years old. He's been wrongly accused. He's been uh, uh, cheated upon. He's been every, he's had every bad thing happen to him over the last 13 years, but In an instant, it is all undone. And he is raised to a position far above anything he had ever known before. Don't miss that. In a verse, in an instant, this took place. And it tells us, beginning in verse 46 through 57, that he went throughout all of Egypt gathering and storing food. What what did Joseph do? His first act in the the second most powerful position in all of Egypt, arguably even the whole world, he didn't throw a big party to welcome himself. It said he immediately went out throughout all of Egypt and began to do what Joseph did, serve faithfully as he had been assigned. And it tells us that because of his work, the grain became so abundant, it was like the sand on the seashore could not even be measured. Could not be measured. And Joseph's same success that he had had in slavery and same success that he had had in prison continued in his work serving the whole kingdom. And then before the famine occurred, the verses tell us that Joseph had two sons who were born to him, Manasseh and Ephraim. And even in the naming of his sons, Joseph continued to recognize God's blessing on his whole life. So so at the apex of his career, at the highest of the highest, and and arguably a great blessing of, of having two sons, he did not forget God, but he honored God in the naming of his children. And Genesis 41 ends by showing us that all that Joseph had said came true. All he said to Pharaoh, all he said to the baker and to the cupbearer, all that he had said to his brothers so many years ago, here came true. Pause for a moment. Think about this. God is not a liar. There is no measure or presence of deceit in him. Don't let this moment, don't let the the reality of this chapter pass you by without letting all that has transpired settle in and what is taking place here. Joseph became the single person to whom all the earth came to be saved. Do you see that? There would not be one person who would be saved in the reality of the famine that would not be saved by Joseph and his work. Well, the chapter culminates his rise from prison all the way to power and glory. I want to show you something. Go to your Bible and look at verse 14. 
Genesis 41, 14 says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of where? The pit. He was in the pit of Egypt. Go to verse 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. That quick. Joseph didn't ask for it. He didn't, he didn't campaign for it. It was God's will. And with the reversal of two numbers, in an instant, God took him from the pit of the world and put him on top of it. That's the kind of power that we are seeing in God and the character that we see in our God. Joseph was not a perfect man and we would be wrong to say he got what he got because of his own perfection or of his own moral excellence. Though surely he stands out in moral excellence against his brothers, right? I mean, we've seen plenty of immorality in their lives. His character was unchanging from the worst of times to the greatest of times. The way he served in the pit with the compassion and mercy he found in serving the other prisoners to the way he immediately went about his labors on top of the world and with power. It was the same. His stewardship remained. Joseph was the same man when everything went right as he was when nothing was right. He served Pharaoh the same way he served the prisoners with his whole heart. Why? Because he was not serving man. He was serving God. That's why. He served wholeheartedly because his hope was set. His hope was anchored to God. And we could walk through here and we could see time after time the different aspects of his life that determine where his hope was set. His character was faithful and consistent. It was full of integrity. In other words, what he claimed to believe wasn't is somehow disconnected from the way he walked it out. He lived in light of what he knew to be true even when there wasn't a shred of evidence that in fact it was. And even when he was falsely accused and wrongly treated, he still lived in light of what he knew to be true. We know that Joseph's hope was set in God because we hear his motive continually. We see the integrity of his life and we see the continued faithfulness of his serving. You see, friends, the steadfast love and favor of God continued on Joseph in his high position, just like in his low, because Joseph's hope remained set in God. Friends, when your hope is set in God, your life is not tossed and turned upside down by your situation. I don't take that single sentence lightly. I get it. It seems like we're being... Pounded like uh, uh, which one of the, uh, the, the Marvel movies or DC, I don't know. I'm not a f big fan of either. But, you know, when uh, Loki, I think, tells Hulk, yeah, I am a god, you can't treat me. And before he finishes the sentence, uh, you know, uh, Hulk takes him and goes, whoom, 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 and just whips him around. I know life makes you feel like you're getting whipped around by Hulk sometimes. 
But what Joseph shows us, and there couldn't be greater illustration for us, is that you may be hit from every side, but not turned upside down. You you may get knocked down, but life cannot knock you out. You you may be bearing up underneath a heavy burden, but, but because of our hope, you will not be crushed by it. You you may be threatened in fear, but you are not without faith. You you may be angry over wrongs and injustices that are done for you, but your anger does not fuel unrighteousness in you. You may become filled with sorrow, but not be absent of joy in the soul. You may become stricken with grief, but not stripped of hope. You may say, but you don't know how weak I feel. Friends, the strength you feel is not as important as the power that God has. I remind you, you have no idea how great a fire from the smallest ember can come. We need to but let God breathe on the smoldering, smoldering ember of our faith and stoke a burning zeal for His glory. When your hope is set on God, you hold to Him in faith because you know He is the one who is holding you. Joseph's character is consistent because his hope is anchored. I want to say that one more time. Joseph's character is consistent because his hope is anchored. It's not in a situation. It's not in a position. It's not even in other people. Joseph's hope was in God. And Joseph's life is recorded to bring us courage and conviction by showing how it is that God works so that we too can trust and obey the God who set his steadfast love on Joseph because in Christ Jesus, that same God has set his steadfast love and hope upon us. Therefore, the question becomes not can we trust God, but rather will you trust God? God. You see, friends, setting our hope is not a passive activity performed upon us, but rather an active participation by us. We direct the whole of our life in accordance with the one that we have come to know in Christ. And, and what is it, or rather, who is it that we have come to know? It is the living God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives to us a living hope, Peter says. First Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I don't know about you, but that's a pit to me. Matter of fact, that's the deepest pit that the world has never and will never figure out. Peter goes on to tell us what we are to do because of the one we know. And listen to what he says in verse 13 of 1 Peter 1. Therefore, in other words, because of the living hope that we have and who it is anchored in, therefore, prepare your mind for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus 
Christ. You see, that word revelation infers something unknown, but that will become known. And the reason a Christian sets our hope is because of what we know will become known at the revelation or has become known in Christ and yet will be at his return. And because of this, we are not allowing our mind to stray to any other factor determined by situation or circumstances or anything else that comes upon us because those things are all subservient to the one in whom our hope is set. So I want you to see this today, friends, and I, I want to help you. I want, I want to encourage you. The Christians set their hope fully on Jesus Christ because we know that only He is life. We set our hope fully on Jesus Christ because we know that only He is life. Now, how do we ensure that our hope is set on Christ as an anchor in any circumstance? How do we know? Well, the fact of the matter is we can't answer the way that we will respond in any test or trial before it arrives. But I can tell you this, we can be prepared and we can know that there is one power, that there is one person who will hold us no matter what comes against us. And we should not wait until that test or that trial arrives to get things in order. Peter says, prepare your minds. Get ready now. 3D trilateration is how GPSs position themselves. So we have this incredible technology of a GPS who any of you who have a smartphone in your pocket or in your hand right now, the commoner or the anti-government individual who doesn't work for the big man you know, or the big woman, or the big whoever. Like, they can be accurate in defining your position by 3D triangulation. I think the last time I researched it was within nine feet of your actual position. The government is within inches, but you don't get that technology. You're peons. Nine feet, that's pretty close. Especially if they're dialing something in on you, right? I mean, I don't want to be within nine feet of their destruction if it's headed my way. 3D triadulation requires a minimum of three satellites because of the triangulation that it uses to determine those reference points. And the more satellites you have, the more accurate it becomes. But three is minimum. And I'm going to tell you three is sufficient for the Christian. I want to offer to you three promises today from God's word that provide reference points in order to locate and to anchor your hope as a Christian in Jesus Christ. Three promises. The first promise we have seen throughout these passages on Joseph's life is the promise of God's sovereign purpose in redemption. God's sovereign purpose in redemption. Friends, this first promise is one that you will not see prior to its arrival. But just like we looked at from verse 14 to verse 41, it'll happen in an instant and you'll realize it was true all along. And I'm telling you what the Christian must learn to live by is the sovereign promise of God's redemption, salvation. 
God's sovereignty anchors our faith, friends, and the promise of his redemption secures it. You see, this promise is not, uh, it doesn't have a shelf life. It's not affected by time. It's not, uh, it's not altered by circumstance. There is nothing that alters the promise of God's redemption. And learning to trust when things are out of our control and beyond our understanding is essential. Is essential. It doesn't mean that you don't feel the test. It doesn't mean that you don't feel the trial. And as I just went through the list, it doesn't mean that, that you don't feel overwhelmed, that you don't feel out of control, or that, that you don't feel like you're being turned upside down. But when you keep your heart anchored in Jesus Christ, your feet stay on the rock no matter what the world seems to be doing and spinning around you. Joseph's life shows us that God puts his people in situations both to use us for his purpose. That's why he put Joseph where he put him. But also, listen to me, this is so important. This is usually the part that we don't really want to have to go through. To make us into the people that God wills for us to be so that he can use us for the work that he has given us to do. You see, in the New Testament, when we realize that we are God's workmanship, that he has foreordained good works for us to do, they're written, they are established. And what God is doing is he is taking every circumstance and situation of your life to form, to mold, to conform, and to transform you into the person he wants you to be to do the work that he has ordained for you to do. Now you think about that tomorrow when you go about your life. Every conversation you have, every instant of, of where you find yourself and what you find yourself in, you remember this. God is working. 14 to 41. 14 to 41. Whatever he's doing, I can trust this. That I'll have a verse 14 and I'll have a verse 41. God's will is for us to trust him because we know him. Listen to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 to 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, who are the heirs of the promise? Co-heirs with Jesus Christ. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. Don't miss that. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone before as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christian, in Jesus Christ, you are a co-heir of God's promise. God anchors your soul, not in the events of the world, but in the event that happened behind the curtain. On the cross of Jesus Christ, 
And he anchors you there so that when Christ comes from the grave, you shall too by faith. You see, the promise of God's sovereign purpose in redemption through Jesus Christ, that is our strong encouragement to hold fast because God is our guarantee. What does it say? He, he can't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Maybe you've heard the argument, what happens when an immovable object encounters an unstoppable one? I'll tell you what happens, God. That's what happens, right? I mean, that's what Hebrews is telling us here. Like, like, this is so far beyond our comprehension, but it is not outside of the realm of our life. It is our anchor. Christ is our strong encouragement to hold fast to God because he is our guarantee. He is our guarantee. Friends, I, I tell you this. This is what held me in my father's passing. It's what held me through the chaos of, of, of COVID over the last year. It's, it's held me through leading, through counseling, through guiding my own children into adulthood. It's, it's held me through the counseling of people and circumstances that, Lord, it's beyond my control. I don't have any idea, but I can tell you what God said. It's held me through the small moments. It's held me through the life-altering moments. And this, this is what will hold me until God is finished with me. As Lottie Moon says, that tower of a woman at about four foot six inches, when she said, I am convinced I am immortal until God is finished with me. That's the sovereign promise, friends. Are you fully surrendered to, to God's greater glory of his sovereign purpose for your life? I can remember as, as a younger man, specifically once I entered into ministry, I regularly returned to this question, am I, am I surrendered to God's greater glory? Well, probably mostly. I would ask myself that because I had to remind myself and I would often find myself wrestling with God as I've matured, asking this question of has become stating this claim over my life. That Lane, do not forget nor forsake this, God's sovereign promise in redemption. For the promise of God's sovereign purpose in redemption is the first anchor of the soul that sets our hope in Jesus, do not wait until a trial or test comes upon you to set your hope in this first promise. The second promise is Jesus' resurrection power. Joseph's rise to power gives a picture of God's resurrection power. And as quickly as we see it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11... When Jesus has just descended in his ultimate humiliation and become humble and obedient to God to become a man and then humble and obedient to God to die as a man on the cross. Verse 9 says, and there God saw him. Now this is not verse 9, sorry. I'm setting verse 9 up. <laughs> and was pleased with the sacrifice. Therefore God raised him up. This is verse 9. And he gave him a position above every other and a name that was like none other. You, have you heard that recently? <laughs> Chapter 41, when Pharaoh raised up Joseph and says, you, 
you will be like none other in the kingdom, second only to me. You see, friends, that's, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing God bring the power of the gospel to bear from the very beginning of his word. God took Jesus from the grave and he exalted him to the highest place. And when by faith we are united with Jesus in his death, God promises to us that the resurrection power of Jesus that raised him from the dead will raise us too because we're united with him. Romans 6, 5 tells us, for if we've been united, with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, Jesus' resurrection power is at work in every Christian, and this is a power that is like none other because the ultimate issues of life have already been settled by his victory. There has been a period, yea, an exclamation point put at the end of that sentence. It's not up for debate. It's not up for potential alteration. The daily issues, therefore, can be faced with a full confidence that we will overcome because he has overcome. That's how you set your hope in Jesus. When my hope is set in Jesus' power, death and the grave do not hold sway over me because it's not final for me. It's not the end. When our hope is in Jesus, sin does not master me, does not consume me, nor control me. Why? Because it cannot overcome Jesus. When my hope is set in Jesus, the unforeseen and the uncontrollable, the overwhelming circumstances may shake me, but they will not undo me because of the unchanging grace that anchors me. Don't look to your own power when life wants to shake you up. Just look down to the rock upon which you stand. And remind yourself of the promise of God and Jesus' resurrection power that is yours. Jesus' power and authority are given to us, friends, to live, to do his will. When does he give them to us? Well, his power is alive in us at salvation. But the last words that Jesus gives in the Great Commission are also ours. And he says, and if you echo the words of Joseph in verses 37 through 45, listen to these words that Pharaoh gives to Joseph and hear the words that Jesus echoes to his disciple. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise. You shall be over my house and my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have seen Set you over all the land of Egypt. All authority. Because I am Pharaoh is given to Joseph. And Matthew 28, 18 says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all these things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There is no place that the authority of Jesus Christ, neither in this earth nor in the spirit realm, has any question or comparison. 
And that's the authority by which we live our life. As you go about your life, live this way. Why? Because your authority will be uncompared because it is Jesus. The promise of resurrection power in Jesus Christ is the second anchor that sets our hope in him. The third promise is this, the Holy Spirit's presence in daily living. The presence of the Holy Spirit in daily living. Jesus promises that the Father will send the Spirit to live in us. And what does he tell us in John? But he tells us that the Spirit will work out what has been worked in us. John chapter 14 verse 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, he's not just left us to go about it and do well on our own. He has come and inhabited us to make sure that what he has worked in us gets worked out of us. What is Holy Spirit working out? The completion of our perfection in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says in Philippians 1:6, I am sure of this certainty. Surety right here that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. There is a day coming, friends, when all of your struggles will cease in an instant. There is a moment coming when Christ returns and in that instant, in the the completion of our lives, the, the, the pain, the heartache, the toil, the challenge and the struggle, all of these things will be absolved. They will be no more because our life will be complete in him. And what we are being told is that Christians do not walk alone, but we keep in step with the spirit of God and what he is doing from God through Jesus Christ in us. You know why Christians can't live the Christian life on their own? Because God never designed it to be lived on their own. God designed it so that the spirit would empower what God had foreordained and what Jesus had completed on the cross. The Holy Spirit brings the reality of Jesus's power and authority to our daily living to complete God's sovereign purpose in us and Jesus's redemption of us. You see, the Holy Spirit is a all-consuming presence that pervades our whole being to control our thoughts, to direct our willful actions, and to consume our responsive emotions by the word of God's truth applied to every area of life in real time. The promise of the Holy Spirit's presence in daily living is the third anchor for our soul that sets our hope in Jesus. Friends, I I, I plead with you today, do not neglect, do not despise the work of God in you. For these three promises, as you consider them for your own life and your own heart, triangulate, if you will, where your hope is set. And if you are always driven by your circumstances, if other people ruin you by the things they say or the way they treat you, you better consider your life. Your hope may not be set in Christ. Friends, it can be if you will trust him. And let it be. Christians set their hope fully on Jesus Christ because we know that only He is life. Let's pray.